Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest this week is John Bond. At age 27, John and his partner, Richard Kirschenbaum, founded Kirschenbaum and Bond a truly new kind of agency that challenged the status quo from the Mad Men era. And within just six months, the agency had been featured in New York Magazine. John has gone on to do so many other things, including working with Forbes to create its iconic 50 most influential CMOs. John also sits on the boards of many companies and is the chairman of the U.S. Advisory Board for System One. Here's my conversation with John Bond. So, First question I ask everybody, John, regardless of where they came from, because I get asked this question all the time. What's the difference between marketing and advertising? Well, advertising is a subset of marketing. It happens to be the most visible. You know, it's interesting because at one time, marketing really was advertising. You know, in the 50s, in the dawn of network television, when you could pretty much throw almost anything on national TV and it would sell. Procter & Gamble didn't have a marketing department. They had an advertising department because they thought that was the driver. It's interesting how it's evolved, right? Where the lines were blurred and now they're kind of advertising is a subset of marketing. Well, you know, marketing's become like the medical industry, right? It used to be the little town in the West. It had one doctor. And they did all the people, all the diseases, and probably the animals too, right? And now that person's the general practitioner. They're a commodity. You want the brain surgeon, the heart surgeon, all the deep specialties. So it's really become, you know, an industry of these incredibly deep, you know, specialties. And nobody knows everything about all of it. Yeah. That's true. And I, I, I always question anybody who says they're an expert at something because everything's changing so quickly, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You need to be an expert at being open to the new, new thing. You know, it's really cultural. People grab onto the thing they know, and then that's the answer until it's outdated. And then they're, you know, not of use anymore. So, you know, my show's called The CMO Whisper. I've done a lot of uh, work with CMOs, and I know you have a lot of thoughts on, on the CMO. And the first question I want to ask is, who's the real CMO today? Like, what does the CMO look like today that impacts marketing? And, and what's their role? Kind of a two-part question. Well, first of all, I believe the most powerful CMOs in the world are the CEOs who understand marketing. Because... You think about it, right? What you were saying before, right? Marketing is mostly driven by advertising, right? And it depends on your definition of marketing. If marketing is just messaging, that's one thing. But maybe the most powerful marketing activities today have to do with action. You know, they have to do with things people do. You know, Steve Jobs was CEO of Apple and he came out with the iPhone he decided to hold off for months on the introduction because he wanted to put Gorilla Glass in. It's more durable. Now, so he looks at it through a consumer lens 
which the CMO could have suggested that, but he would have been fired. So I, I think, you know, the human resources approach, who people hire, all that sort of thing, you know, all of that is part of the brand now because everything's visible to everyone. You know, it's all a transparent world. Because of transparency, everything is marketing. And therefore, I think the real CMOs are the CEOs. Now, what is the CMO job, right? You know, again, it could be as small as what's the messaging, but also it could be an administrative function because if you look at the healthcare analogy, if you have all these specialties and specialist people, you know, the data science person and the social media, paid social, organic social, content marketing, influencer marketing, even that keeps splitting up into sub-segments that didn't exist a few years ago, right? Then really the CMO could also be the hospital administrator, right? They don't do that much. They hire a bunch of people to do things and they kind of manage the whole thing. The other kind of CMO that's out there is someone that came up through a specific area. Like, let's say they came through performance marketing. And unfortunately, a lot of those people, the answer is that one thing that they know, no matter what the issue is. And that's not that good either. So, you know, sometimes I question if CMO is even a job uh, or is it a viewpoint to look at the whole company and everything you do through a consumer lens? So I, I, I'm sure you've heard the stat. It's seemingly frowned forever that the CMOs on average have the lowest tenure in the, in the yeah. I have my own thoughts. Yeah. But you, why, why, in your opinion? That's a, that's a great question. Okay, so in my, in my life after running ad agencies, where I'm on boards, public board, I've been chairman of a public company, and, you know, funny thing is you're in these meetings and you realize that, you know, mar- marketing is sort of like, the people who are the kids, they're at the kids' table, you know. And the worst thing you can do in that environment is try to educate people on what marketing is. Here's what a brand is. Here's, oh, by the way, they don't want to be educated. What you have to do is translate marketing into things they care about. Like, if we do so-and-so, that will impact our valuation, blah, 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 right? So you, you, you have to translate from one language into another, right? Otherwise, you get a little pat on the head. You, you go sit at the kid's table, and that's why most get fired. They don't translate marketing into the language of business. And frankly, being on these public boards, you know, business is run by financial people, uh, lawyers to some extent. It's not run mostly by marketing people. That's why these marketing background people that elevated to CEO are so powerful because they have the ability to actually make things happen, you know, through the lens of the consumer. But to do that, they have to get comfortable with all these other languages and, you know, the world of grown up business. Yeah. Let, let me let me flip the dynamic a second on you. Is there an onus also on the CEO slash hiring person to pick the right, not only the right CMO, John, but the right kind of CMO? Yes. Well, look, number one, there are CMOs that play well to the board and the CEO. And I put them all 
and the CFO, right? But doesn't mean they're good CMOs. It means they won't get fired because they speak that language really well. It doesn't mean they speak the language of marketing and creativity. See, I actually think in reality, the CMO is a creative job, okay? Marketing is creative, it's aesthetics, and you, you, know, you, you, you could go to Harvard Business School and be really brilliant, but be a really terrible marketing person. You have an intensive taste in aesthetics, unfortunately. And I met a lot of these kind of people. And I think we, you know, we mislabel what it is. And I think the best marketing people have a strong dose of creative built into their, into their psyches. I mean, I had Target in the very beginning, in the late 90s, when they, we were with them and we decided we were going to go take on style, right? Until then, they were a lot like a Walmart or a Kmart, right? And they had this brilliant guy who was the CMO, and he had a theater background, and he was, you know, very good at the creative side. And, you know, we had no budget to start the year. Every month, we'd do a bunch of ideas, and then a couple other agencies at that point, too. And he would put all the work up in a wall. He'd walk the CEO around the room, look at the ideas, and the guy would go, I like that one. That's worth $5 million. No, not. Hey, that's good. Throw $20 million at that. I swear that's how the budget happened. I just thought that was brilliant. Wow. That's got to be rare though, right? Extremely. But those kind of people are really good CMOs. They get great work that's visionary. They're not fearful, you know, but they have to be in a culture and have the trust of the CEO, right? Or be able to play that boardroom game if they don't have a CEO that understands well, that. Yeah. See, that's just it. It's it's not, sometimes you know this, it's not just the CEO, it's the others in the C-suite as well, especially the CFO. Yeah. I got a funny story. I was working with this private equity company to do a roll-up of agencies once, right? There were two agencies we were looking at buying. One of them is a very famous high-profile agency that everyone knows. And the other was a middle-of-the-road eh, agency. Now, the, the, the second agency was going to sell for four times multiple. And, that other, and the first agency wanted 15 times. And I said, buy the first agency. It's a steal. And they went, what are you, crazy? What? You know, I go, they're the coolest agency in town, right? They're going to grow. To which they said, oh, cool, like, you mean it'd just be kind of cool and fun to have them around? At which point I go, oh, they're looking at me like I'm at the kids' table. This was the CEO and the four managing partners. I turn around and I go, well, let me tell you something, okay? The cool agency's the one that's going to grow double digits for the next 10 years. If the other agency was going to do that, I'd say let's buy them. The guy all of a sudden has a smile on his face. He turns to his partners and he goes, I get it. He's one of us. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I, I caught myself veering into that kid's table, pat, pat on the head and realized, oh, shit. Okay, I got to translate this into the language they get. So you mentioned... CMOs should be creative, right, at their core. And, and I want to segue into something that you've said to me off the air kind of thing, is that you think ads are less effective today, right? And in general, and we'll, you know, I want to get into details. Yeah. And 
Yeah. My thinking is, and it ties into what we do at System One, is ads just don't evoke as as much emotion as they should, right? Why do you think ads have become, in your word, your words, quote, less effective? Well, I think it's messaging, not just ads. And, you know, ads are the number one deliverer of messaging because I think it's also what you're advertising. If you're advertising a message as opposed to a tangible thing, that's a whole different story. So I'll tell you what I mean. I think marketing today is about building tangible assets that grow over time in effectiveness that you own, not rent. All messaging is rented. You run some ads, everything goes up, up, up. You turn off the money. The next day it starts going down, 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 right? So it's like renting an apartment, not owning. But when you look at things, again, what, are, what do I mean by things you own? Okay, uh, American Express, right, 10 years ago, they could have said, we're going to celebrate small business and go and, you know, everyone should support their small business. That would be messaging. No, they created a thing called Small Business Saturday, and they advertise and market that. And, you know, it, ha- it also has a user marketing express card. You get $25 off. It's a whole, like a national holiday almost. When they launched it, Obama actually tweeted it. So tell me how often a president of the United States tweets support of a marketing idea, right? It's incredible. Um, So that's one example. I could give you 30 more, but you get the idea. It's an asset that grows over time. I'll give you one other one while we're at it, right? Uh, M&Ms, I think it was Ogilvy they hired. They wanted to do an extravagant billboard in Times Square. And what Ogilvy did instead is that, you know, for the same money, we could have an M&M store. Now it's like a friggin' four-story store in Square, right? So again, it's a thing that's tangible. It's an asset like you'd put on a balance sheet. It's not messaging or advertising, you know, that's ephemeral and just disappears in the air. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is remarkable. I know the building you're talking about. It's it's it's, it's incredible. It's amazing, right? It's amazing. Oh, yeah, and even even the ad campaigns. You know, I was once asked 2009 during that horrible recession to judge all the Super Bowl ads. Right now, there were lots of funny ads with monkeys and babies and whatever. Right, the worst ad creatively, I said. This ad is the only ad that anyone's going to know a year from today. Okay. And it was Hyundai Assurance. They were launching Assurance, which was if you lose your job in the first, I think, six months. Why why did you think that only that ad? Well, because it was based on an idea that was bigger than an ad, right? If you lose your job, you can give us the car back. How great is that? And now they've done Assurance every time there's a recession or COVID, they come back with with that program. And it's a really brilliant, brilliant idea. You know, you know, it's a promotional idea if you think about it. And it's a simple idea. Simple idea. And so, like, if you advertise a thing that's an asset that's tangible, that's much better than just messaging. Because it's an action. It's that proof built in that you, that you care about this. The elephant literally in every every marketer's room right now across the world is AI. 
what do I do? How do I get started? Is it going to take my job? You probably hear this stuff on a daily basis. What do you, let's start with someone comes to you and says, John, uh, I'm in marketing or I oversee a brand, pick, pick one job and come at it from that lens. And if someone says to you, how do I get started with AI? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me take a step back before I answer that and say that, look, from 1960 to 1995, nothing changed, right? We all made funny TV spots and threw them out there and that was it, right? Same shit every year. And then because of technology, the world started changing fast, right? Oh, you know what the big thing was till 19, from that 35-year period? Cable TV. But it's nothing compared to all the technological changes that have happened since then and how fast they're moving, right? So he, here's my insight. Just like Procter & Gamble in the 50s adopted television as the thing that was going to differentiate them and set them apart and got ahead of it, right? As new technologies come to the forefront and they scale, most people are loath to adopt these things. Just because human nature, people don't like change. They don't like adopting new things. So there's a window of time when you have a huge advantage in adopting something early. For example, paid social ads. And Facebook figured out how to do that and, and Instagram. He, tons of multi-hundred million dollar DDC companies have been built while Procter & Gamble was asleep at the wheel and all these other companies, right? Now... It, it, there's so much demand and the prices of the, of the, of the ads have gone way up. And, uh, you know, that's why people are, you know, TikTok, right? So that, that window is over now. It's moved from that earlier stage to mature. So you gotta, you gotta jump on the new thing once it's obvious it's going to hit. So I put AI in that category now. Won't always be, but now. There's a huge competitive advantage in wrapping your head around AI. And by the way, so I have an interest in an AI company that I think is brilliant addition. And what's amazing to me is how reticent people are to adopt it because they know how to do what they do. They're afraid it'll make them look dumb. They're afraid it'll take the job. And by the way, that's the opportunity to jump on it. So Honestly, when you say how to get started in it, I, no, no, don't get started. Jump in it with two feet and build everything around it. That, that's my advice because that window is open now, won't always be. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I just saw, I believe it was Pepsi, the CMO of Pepsi saying, basically, we're going to go slow, right? And we're going to wait and see. And it's exciting, but we're going to, you know, play in the baby pool kind of thing. Yeah. And you're, you're so right in that, that if you're not among the first, there may not be room on that train for you when it is running. Listen, that, that's what Coke should be saying. Pepsi should be on it, all over it, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. That, it's, that. I think and you, you said something so, so important earlier, John, that it's human nature to have this fear, Right. And especially if you're talking about people overseeing brands who have been there far too long, which is another story, but who just get very comfortable in their jobs. 
and they're, quote, hitting their numbers. So what do I need to do anything different? And by the way, they're hoping they can ride it out till they get a new job, till they retire, till they get promoted to something else, and they don't have to mess around with any of this stuff. So the timeline is also out of whack for them because they're not incentivized to jump on things now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating time with, with AI. I, I get it almost, you must get it a ton with what you're doing. I get at least two or three a day of, I don't know what to do, Steve. What should I do? Tell them to I, call me. <laughs> but there you go. We'll start you know, a little bit. Steve, there are so many things. So that's why I haven't answered it specifically. I, There's so many things to do. With exactly, John. And what I say is, and everybody, you know this. I know what I'm about to say you're going to agree with. I'm not putting words in your mouth. But everybody has at least tried the the exhibit A of AI, chat GPT. Everybody yeah. I talked to has said, well, you know, I tried something in chat GPT, write me an email. And I said, okay. And? There's no end. They just go, ah, it's, I'm going to wait and see. Okay. Anyway, it's just it's just a fascinating time. Let me pivot to another topic that I know you are passionate about and have a lot of thoughts on, and that's influencers. And I'm curious, John, in in your career, when did you see the rise right of influencers? What success failures have you had with influencers? What advice do you give to brands who go, "Hey, Bob Smith has eight million followers. I got to work with him," without even thinking about who those followers are, kind of thing. I, I got involved with influencers in the late 80s when I started uh, Kirschenbaum Bond. And our whole idea was it's all about word of mouth. People don't trust ads. They trust other people. And the strategy is what you want them to say. And the role of the creative is to stimulate them to say it. Right? So because influencers it, it isn't necessarily social media. You know, in fact, 95% of all influence is transmitted through the air. So we just can't measure that very well. So we think it's all social, but, but it's not, you know, so that's the first thing, right? So influencers aren't only people that have big followings, right? So in other words, like, let's say there's a, there's a guy who's a thought leader He's not a big social media guy, and he has 10 followers. No one pays him any attention. Oh, who are those followers? Well, they're journalists for the Wall Street Journal and The Economist, and whatever he says, they pick up. But on paper, he looks like a nobody. He's got 10 followers. Who cares, right? So that's real influence as opposed to reach. You know, the problem is people are confusing reach with influence. Like you have a lot of followers, it means you're influential. No, it doesn't. And by the way, if you want reach, go on TV. Okay, that does it better than anything. So, so the next thing about influencers is, you know, this interesting fact that there is an inverse correlation between the number of followers you have and how credible you are and how influential you are with those followers right? Because a lot of people are at arm's length. And that leads to the influencers who are, you know, these micro nano influencers, right? Who are very, very believable, will do things for nothing or for very little, right? Because of that passion. They're not professional influencers. 
The issue with them is you can't round up four or five. You know, you got to have 400 or 500. So therefore that requires technology, tools and other sorts of things, you know, but that's, that's really creating a whole army. And then you go to celebrities, right? So there are celebrity spokespeople who are on air, on TV, talking about products. And they're people that do the same thing in social. Um, the problem is that they're not believable, you know, because they're a tweet for hire. Okay. But what is believable is a celebrity that owns the brand or a significant part of the brand. And so one of the first ones was P. Diddy with Ciroc, because I had the business at, at Diageo. We were doing like 50, 60,000 cases, which is nothing. Diddy got a hold of it. He acted, he activated his entire network, which isn't just passive people. It's people going into bars saying, can you make, you know, I want the Ciroc stuff. And so went to 3 million cases from 50, 60,000. And, you know, Ryan Reynolds, you're getting people that are not celebrity spokespeople, but they're partners in the business. So they have a commitment to it. So on one side, you have small micro influencers. And on the opposite side, you have celebrity owners. And everything in between, eh. I'm curious, with all your experience, did you ever have a brand come to you and say, we want to work with Celebrity X, right? But you knew they were not the right fit. But they kept pushing that we want to work with the celebrity. And if you didn't, what would you, how would that scenario go down? Like, you know, really want to work with the celebrity. A lot of times. Okay. (laughs) Give us one. A lot of times. You don't have to name, you don't have to name the celebrity if you don't want to. No, I won't. I I can't. (laughs) But I'll give you an example. So a lot of times it happens. They've wrapped their head around someone they personally like or their agent got a hold of them, you know, and Look, there's two kinds. That's always the CEO, by the way. It's very rarely even the CMO. It's usually, you know, because the CEO runs in circles that have a lot of celebrities. CMO, not as much. So if they're business-like and objective, that's fine. If they have those stars in their eyes, it's over. Like once they have stars in their eyes... And look, who are you? You're the agency or the consultant. So they outrank you, the celebrity. And like, you know, it it goes in the category of buying (laughs) skyboxes. You know, you can't argue anyone out of that. Or sometimes sponsoring golf tournaments, which I like to go play in. (laughs) But I'm not putting up the $1,000. Yeah, right. That's a little different, but it's interesting. I, I, cause I think it happens more times than the general public even realizes when they see a, a celebrity endorser for a given brand and the backstory behind it would be fascinating. Oh, completely. And there's a lot of backstories with that. You know, look, the agent wants to go around you and go right to the client, EMO, but usually CEO. And then you're stuck with them, you know? And then it's your fault if it doesn't work. But anyway, you know, you brought up a good point, though, which is what is the equity overlap between the celebrity and the brand? And I always look at it like it should look 
as if the guy or the woman would have done it for nothing because it's so relevant to who they are as a person, their personal passions, their persona, you know, that's my test. I, I always liken it to, John, is to when you see a movie and you see a star, like, he, this person's only doing it for the money. They have no business being in this role. It's so funny because I read this article last night on uh, Grumpy Old Men. And one of the guys in the movie was saying, you know, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. And Jack Lemmon, I mean, Walter Matthau apparently was a compulsive gambler. And the, the younger actor, I think he's playing his son, is like, good script. Huh, Walter? He's like, nah, it sucks. I owe my bookie two million. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I bet that happens a lot more than we know. That happens a lot more than we know. Absolutely. But people are onto it. I'm telling you, they're onto it. Oh, I know. Hey, listen, speaking of, of that world, I would be remiss if I didn't. I'm going to put you on the spot, but you're going to be the proud father. Tell us about your daughter, what she's up to. I see these oh. posts and... Remy Bond. She has been blessed with a good name. So there's no stage name. You know, it's the curse of the creative genes, right? I, I'm not going to have any investment banker kids to take care of me in my old age. I'll tell you that. Uh, I don't know. You know, she was an actress on 30 Rock. Then she and her sister were in MasterChef Junior, the only two siblings ever to be on it. And then she did some clothing design over COVID. She's always, you know, sung. Uh, and been written. And so she started really focusing on that in the last year and just put out her first song and it's, it's doing really great. And she's got a lot of nibbles from big, big labels. It's called End of the World. It's been out like two weeks, got 40 something thousand listens on Spotify. And, uh, you know, it's, so it's doing really well. It's, you gotta be such the proud dad, right? Uh, I'm the proud dad, but, you know, I'm actually a good dad for her because I grew up with, you know, offbeat creative people and she f would fit right into my agency, you know, <laughs> just a perfect fit. Well, I, I, the apple did not fall far from that tree, John, obviously. Not at all. No, <laughs> but now, but now I have to deal with the creative stuff, you know, so... <laughs> right, which which is a cursing and a, bless, a blessing, I bet. It's a curse and a blessing. Uh, curse and a blessing. It's never boring. That's the <laughs> <laughs> But it is some drama. But. It's a perfect segue to the, as we wrap up here, you can see, I know those can't because it's you can only hear this, but John can see behind me there's an album wall. Yeah. Right? I'm a huge, huge music fan. Very eclectic, as you can see, the wide variety of music behind me. And... The song that resonated or resonates with me and is my favorite song of all time is a song called Lean On Me by Bill Withers. Yeah. And those lyrics have – anybody who knows me within five seconds knows why, right? So my question to you is, yes, I'm going to put you on the spot, but is there a song, is there a lyric, is there an album, even a concert you went to, something in the musical world that just – that's me. That speaks to me. That lyric. Anything come to mind? I think Imagine, you know, that's an incredible song and, you know, visionary and emotional and John Lennon. So, yeah, I think I think that's the one that hits me. I'm going to sound like an old guy by saying that the lyrics are not as good as they used to be. There's a shortage of good songwriters, I think. Oh, 
without question. That's the topic for our part two discussion. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, it's a lot about production, but it's the same as advertising. The, when the focus goes on to production and production values, it moves away from substance and the, and the content of the, you know, the soul, right? Yeah. So last question, as I'm putting together my studio here, and, and again, big music fan, as you can see it, I had this phrase pop into my consciousness, the sound of marketing. And I, I'm asking everybody at the end of every, every interview I do, what does the sound of marketing sound like to John Bond? It's a great question because, but you know, the, the issue is marketing's multi-sensory. So I have a hard time with the sound of marketing when it's about so much more than sound. But, you know, I, I, I think it's a sound, you know, back to system one, right, which makes me feel something, you know. And I think people in marketing miss stimulus response. Like they think what I put out is what people take away. And they have nothing to do with each other, Right. You could put out, I'm the greatest car in the world, and people take away, well, that's just, you know, a bunch of hype and BS. <laughs> Nothing to do with each other, right? So I think the thing about that question and actually system one is, it's about what makes someone feel something. And again, that goes back to why I said good CMOs are sensitive and creative because they have to have the antenna up to look at something through the eyes of the consumer and know how it's going to make someone feel not someone might not like it eh, their mind's full of politics it has to be only the one side of the brain that feels right and so when i look at creative work or songs or anything i first feel and then my rational brain takes over and goes why did it make me feel that way then I explain it in business terms. But a lot of people that are academic, they've got, you know, as I said, they've got great degrees from Ivy League schools. They're blocked on the feeling part, right? They go right to the analyzing it before they know how it hit them or how it would hit anyone. So anyway, that, that kind of brings it full circle. Yeah, and I'm I'm so tempted to go down this next rabbit hole, but I'm going to save it for part two because we got to have a part two of our discussion because you just gave me a great idea for part two, and, and I'll tee that up when we talk again. We're out of time. I cannot thank you enough for being on my show. It has truly been an honor. Thank you, Steve. That was awesome, and uh, keep, keep whispering. <laughs> well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. 